three, and I'll give you a second to get there. Nobody judge anybody for looking in the front of their Bibles this week. It's Habakkuk, I'll give you that. <clears throat> Be in prayer for uh, Pastor Troy and the Cope family. They are in Guatemala this morning. Uh, Ricky Cope will be preaching today. Be in prayer for them. Last week, we started in our Summer of Hope series, and today, I want to speak to you about a song of hope. Now, everybody has guilty pleasures. Guilty pleasures are those things that you know you probably shouldn't enjoy, and most people would judge you for enjoying them, but you have them anyway. It could be a particular food that you know has zero nutritional benefit, but you just... I mean, it's a deep-fried Twinkie. It does no, It has, has nothing, but I had four of them. Like, I mean, it's guilty pleasures. It could be a TV show that you know is trash, but you are into it, and you can't wait for the next season to come out, and you'll binge it as soon as it does. Guilty pleasures. Some of them make sense to us, and some of them don't. I, like all of you, have a guilty pleasure. And I'm not ashamed to share it with you. You can judge me if you like, but I'm married and I have two teenagers, so I'm impervious to all of your judgment. Um, but I like musicals. Don't, don't you dare snicker. I love musicals. I love everything about musicals. Musicals tell a difficult and sometimes very broken narrative, and they tell them in conversations. And yes, they tell them in over painted makeup and very dramatic moves and everything else, and I know it's cheesy, but they tell them not just in a narrative of conversation, but in song and lyric. I love that. I love musicals. You judge me if you want. Haters are going to hate. I understand that. And I don't really remember if as a child I had much exposure to musicals, but I do know where my love affair with musicals started. It started in sixth grade when the teacher announced in music class that we were going to spend the next few weeks watching West Side Story. Now, if you're not familiar with West Side Story, everybody in the room in that classroom went, oh, oh my goodness, and I played along because I didn't know what I was getting into. And I vividly remember being sucked into West Side Story for weeks, and I could not wait till Mondays rolled around that we would watch this in music class. And everybody, I, I remember like one kid going, Trivet's getting into this and having to play it off like, no, I'm not. I was enthralled. If you're not familiar with it, it is just amazing. You've got Bernstein and Sondheim, who are the godfathers of classic Broadway music. Music, all right, they are the best. And it's that rhythmic sound that only they can create. It was written by author Arthur Lorenz, and it was based loosely on Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Now, if you're not familiar, take Romeo and Juliet and set it in the 1950s in the Upper West Side of New York, okay, in a blue-collar, hard-working, multicultural, mixed community, all right? And in this community, you've got two gangs, all right? I love it. It's so cool. You've got the Sharks and the Jets, all right? And the Sharks and the Jets hate each other. The Sharks and the Jets are led by... Their leaders, Bernardo, leads the Sharks, who are Puerto Rican, and the Jets are led by Riff, the new leader, who is not really the main character. The main character is Tony, who is the old leader of the Jets, and his loyalty is in question, but he's a Jet all the way. 
Now, in this story, these two opposing forces, these gangs that hate each other, the Sharks and the Jets, seem to be just going on with their hate until Tony meets Maria. Maria, I just met a girl named Maria. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? There's like five people who are like, yeah, I've seen it. It's not, it's not that good. I'm telling you, it's incredible. Now, Maria is Bernardo's sister. Tony is the ex-leader of the Sharks. Y'all feel this tension, right? I just met a girl. Okay, they, he's in love with Maria, and Maria loves Tony. And it all comes to this climactic point where there is a brawl, and Tony ends up stabbing Bernardo, and he kills him. After it's over with, Tony is basically on the run for his life. Him and Maria plan to run away, but Chino is coming to find Tony and kill him. In the end, Tony is killed. Bernardo is killed. The gangs go into a brawl for more than 24 hours. It tears the city and these two communities apart. Maria comes to the end of herself, holding the body of Tony and Screams, I now have hate. Anybody remember that song? I can hate now too, Maria. (laughs) And the final scene is the sharks and the jets carrying the body of Tony off and Maria bringing up that processional. It's just so good and so powerful. This musical dealt with racism and violence and bigotry and class systems within different systems. It dealt with the American identity in the framework of all this tension. And it did so in 1957 America. Now, if you don't know about my... I wasn't there then. But if you don't know about America in 1957, that was a huge deal. In the midst of this chaotic narrative, there's music and song. That's what I love most about musicals is in the middle of a conversation, in the middle of a conflict, someone just starts singing, when you're a jet, you're a jet all the way. You're like, Tony, we, we just asked if you're loyal. And he goes into song. I love that. There's something about this music, this underlying rhythm in those that communicates, listen, the volume of the message in a deeper and more meaningful way. When we come to Habakkuk chapter 3, A very dark, a very heavy, a very chaotic narrative is interrupted by the prophet busting out in song. Literally, it's as if you can hear the tin of a piano. Ding, ding, ding. And the stage lights begin to go down and a single beam of light falls on Habakkuk and he lifts his voice to begin to sing. And he does so out of nowhere. He does so in the midst of a very dark and shifting couple of passages. Habakkuk chapter 3 is a beautiful transition from the weight and the heaviness of the previous two chapters. Habakkuk sings, and in this song, you and I listen to a song of hope, a song of rejoicing, and it speaks to us about a song of hope that is ours 
even in the chaos of the narratives that are around us. So let me show you a few things from this passage this morning, because I want to listen to his song, but I want to listen to it rightly. So let's look at these things together. First of all, I want you to consider the scene and the song. As Troy said last week, we're sort of grabbing passages out of a greater context, and so it's important as we do to make sure we understand what's going on. One of my favorite parts about musicals, again, now that I'm talking about it, is the overture. The overture in a good musical will do a few things. It will catch you up as to what's going on in the story. It, it sort of gives you foreshadows and nuances of different songs that you're going to hear on repeat. But really what the, the overture of a good uh, musical does is it's catching you up. It's telling you who the characters are, what the story is, how we got here, and it's doing it in song. That's the overture. Well, the overture to chapter 3 is setting the rhythm and catching us up to what's happened in chapters 1 and 2 of Habakkuk. The overture to this song is found in those chapters. So as we consider this scene and this song, let's first set the scene. Now, if you go back to Habakkuk chapter 1, as we set the scene, Habakkuk begins with a complaint. Now, he's struggling with the way that things are in his world, And he's upset because there is a rampant injustice and sin amongst God's people. And he's upset about the death of their king. He's upset about their rebellion. But really, he vents his frustrations towards God because he does not see how God is working, what God is doing, or if God is even aware how bad things are. You see, there was a pattern of rebellion with the children of Israel, and it seemed to Habakkuk this is the worst it had ever been. Josiah was king, and he found the scrolls, the Torah, in the temple, and he began to read it, and then he began to read it to the people of Israel, of Judah. And the nation repents. They tear down all their false gods, and they turn back in true worship to God. But then Josiah goes off to battle, is killed, and immediately his sons undo every spiritual reform that he had done. They, they start to bring back the temples to the false gods. They institute worship of the false gods again, and God's people go deeper into idolatry and rebellion against God than they ever had before. And Habakkuk is devastated. He is discouraged. He is enraged at this display. And he complains to God. Look at verses 2 through 4 of Habakkuk chapter 1. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you look idly at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, and justice goes forth perverted. Here's his complaint. There is violence among your people. There is iniquity and sin and wrongdoing runs rampant among your people. There's destruction. There's strife. There's contention. There's fighting. He said, your law is paralyzed. It has no effect, no power, no impact in your people's life. Injustice runs rampant among your people. The wicked outnumber the righteous in your people. What comes out of your people is perverted. It's broken. God, it's a mess down here, and you're doing nothing about it. That's Habakkuk's complaint. He's frustrated. He's confused. And in his mind, from his limited perspective, God is off duty. 
He's not doing anything. Habakkuk complains, and then the most astonishing thing happens in verse 5. God responds to Habakkuk. Now, you and I have been up in church for years, and we get bored by stuff like this, but please consider what's happening. A man complains to God, and God answers. This is astounding to me. And in reality, Habakkuk really sort of gets off easy. God had answered his people before. Do you remember when he answered Job? Job was called upright, perfect, blameless, but all Job had really said in defense of his terrible friends was, if God was here, he would tell me what's going on, he would answer my questions. And God shows up in chapter 38 of Job and says, who is this that steps into my presence and asks questions without knowledge? Who is the moron speaking without wisdom? He says to Job, step up and dress for action like a man. Gird yourself, big boy, if you want to question me. <laughs> Job, after God retaliates and says, where were you when I hung the moon and stars in place? And Job's like, I spoke once, I won't speak again. I'm just going gonna, gonna to zip it. And then God goes again, did you give the horse his speed and the bird its flight? And Job's like, I should I'm my bad, I'm sorry. Here Habakkuk speaks and complains to God, and God graciously answers. Look at verse 5. <laughs> Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told you. Here's God's reply. Sweet Habakkuk, you ignorant, blind little prophet. I, I'm not missing anything. I'm not letting anything slide. I, I'm totally and keenly aware of all of it. it there, there's not injustice that will not be dealt with. There's not sin that I will not deal with. Habakkuk, I know where you're at. I know what you see. I'm aware of it. Habakkuk, if you could look past your little context, your little cosmos that you think you exist in and that only exists, if you could look beyond that, and see what I'm doing, it would astound you. It would astound you. Look to the nations, Habakkuk. I'm doing something that if I explained it to you, you wouldn't believe it. You couldn't comprehend it. God says, I'm doing something. In the rest of that chapter, God tells him exactly what it is that he's going to do. He's going to raise up the Chaldeans, an enemy nation of Judah. Not just enemy, not just any enemy nation, but the most hated and reviled. He calls them that hasty and hated rival nation. And Judah is going to be judged and disciplined at the hands of the Chaldeans. Throughout this first chapter, they're called dreaded and fearsome. They execute their own justice in their violence. They have military might that is unrivaled, and they do not flinch in battle. They lust after it. Their kings laugh at all other kings, and their people will not stop over anybody that opposes them. God says, I'm raising them up, and they're coming to deal with you and my people. God says, I didn't miss it. I'm bringing to my children who have disobeyed me discipline. Eventually to the Chaldeans, he'll bring judgment. But God is shaping and he is fashioning. Beginning in verse 12, Habakkuk sort of backs up and punts and Begins to flatter God a little bit, and basically what Habakkuk is saying is, surely that's not your plan. Like, that's, surely that's not what you're going to do. 
He begins to plead with God and says, You're the everlasting God and we are your people. He argues with God that you have ordained us for blessing, for life, and the Chaldeans, you've ordained them for judgment and wrath. Surely, God, this is not your plan. He pleads on the holiness of God and says, Listen, if they defeat us, God, it'll be like they're defeating you. God, maybe you should rethink this plan. Chapter 2 and verse 1, Habakkuk sets himself up on a watchtower, confident that his argument against God's plan has done the trick, and he's going to wait what God will say back. God answered, and he speaks beginning in chapter 2 and verse 2, and he will continue speaking up until our text in chapter 3. God affirms, yes, Habakkuk, I do know what I'm doing. And what I'm doing is for your discipline, it's for your deliverance, it's for your salvation. I love how God responds to the very heart of man's questions, faithfully and surely. There's going to be a time where the nation of Judah is going to be tested, they're going to be reproved, they're going to be rebuked, they're going to be disciplined, but God is not going to forsake them. I love how God answers the questions that as you wait and as you think that it may not be coming, if you think that I have forgotten, if you think that I have missed it, be sure that I have not. It's on the screen. Look at verses 2 and 3 from the message translation. God says to Habakkuk, write this. Write it out in big block letters so that you can see it and read it on the run. This vision message is a witness pointing to what's coming. It aches for the coming. It can hardly wake and it does not lie. If it seems slow in coming, wait. It's on the way. It will come right on time. God says to Habakkuk, no, this is my plan. And my plan will be carried out. But he tells him, don't think that while you're waiting for it that I've forgotten. Don't think in the silence when I'm not moving that I have become absent in my task. It's coming, and it's coming on time. The rest of chapter 2, God explains how he will execute his justice, how he will execute his discipline. This is the scene of this song. It's dark, it's confusing. It's hard to see what God is doing or to know how he is working you don't always see his hand, and sometimes it feels like it's out of control. And there are times when we just cry out, God, what exactly are you doing? Do you even know what's happening? And God replies and says, I'm more aware than you could imagine. And I'm working, I'm orchestrating this out for your good and my glory. It could be that he is executing discipline in our lives to chasten us because that's what he does to those who belong to him. He could be executing judgment, but God is in control. That's the scene. Now I want you to hear the song. Go back to chapter 3 and verse 1, and we'll stay here for the rest of our text. Hear the song, chapter 3 and verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to the Shijanoth, or Shiganoth. I'm going to go with Shiganoth because, as you can already tell, I have trouble with the first one, the first one. but depending on who you ask, the Shiganoth or Shijanoth. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. Now, the first question should be, is this a prayer or is it a song? We're calling this a song of hope. Is it a prayer or a song? And the answer is yes, it is both. This word, shiganoth, that is given there in verse 1, there's some debate about what it actually means. It's literally because of some of the uncertainty. It's just a transliteration of the actual Hebrew word. 
This particular word is only used in this instance, in this form, here in Habakkuk chapter 3. Psalm chapter 7 uses another variation of the word to talk about how the psalm or the song is supposed to be sung. And most commentators and translators believe that what Habakkuk is saying here is that this is a song and this is what you are to do in the song. And the shiganoth is a stringed instrument. I believe this is confirmed throughout this chapter. It is a song. You see some clues here. Look at verses 3, verse 9, and verse 13. You see the word selah. You've seen this in the Psalms over and over again. It means to stop, to pause, to reflect, to consider what you've just sung, what you've just read. Think about those truths. Selah. Stop. And in verse 19, the clue of all clues, it ends with these words, to the choir master with the stringed instruments. It's in the middle of all this confusion where God says, I'm going to judge, the Chaldeans are coming and it's going to be bad. It's in the midst of this that Habakkuk begins to sing a song. There's a big difference between chapter 1 Habakkuk and chapter 3 The frustrated, angry prophet demanding answers from God in chapter 1 now has come to rest. And in a moment, he pauses not just to reflect, but to worship in song. So you've seen the the scene and the song. Now I want you to notice, secondly, the lyrics and their purpose. One of the main fights that I have with my children is trying to get them to listen to the lyrics of the songs that they, they listen to. Does anybody else have trouble with this? They're, they're, because lyrics matter. They matter. And I'm not, I'm not a stickler for style of music. If you looked at my, my iTunes account, you would be shocked. Most of you would be mortified. I'm not a stickler about style of music, but I think lyrics are important. And they'll bring me a song, so you've got to hear this, this is good. And I'll listen to it and be like, well, that's demonic. That's garbage. You, what, what, have you listened to this? And they're like, well, I like the chorus. Well, there's other parts of the song, and they're horrible. Have you listened to it? And I'll get on to them like, just listen, man. You're poisoning your mind. Last week, I was listening to a song from my day, and I was singing along with it, and halfway through, I went, oh. I should listen to the lyrics. Well, the lyrics of Habakkuk's song to us give us some critical information Some lessons about our song of hope. It tells us what it is. So what are the lyrics and the purpose of the lyrics in Habakkuk's message? Well, the first message that Habakkuk gives us in the lyrics is in response to what God has just said. I'm coming to judge. And the first thing that we see is Habakkuk pleads for God to continue his work of mercy. God has told him, I'm coming to judge with the Chaldeans. And Habakkuk begins by pleading with God to continue his work of mercy. Look at verse 2 of chapter 3. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it, that work. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. The prophet begins with this God-centered lyric, this focus that turns our attention at the very beginning to God. I have heard the report of you. I have seen your hand at work. I have come to know you, to fear you, to understand you. You have to work. You have to revive. You have to restore. Only you can give mercy, God. 
Remember mercy. Habakkuk has no more complaints. There doesn't seem to be questions or a need for explanation. He just simply turns his heart to hope in God. His attention and his focus are moved vertically as he looks to the source of his hope at the very beginning of this song. Darkness is coming and it's going to be bad. God is sending judgment. He's going to discipline. The Chaldeans are upon us. Remember mercy. There's a plead for mercy. This is the source of his hope. The scene has not changed. But it's in this scene that he cries out, I've come to know you. I've seen your hand. I trust what you're doing. God, I don't need an explanation, but I know you. And all I'm asking is that you don't stop working in your mercy. Don't give up. Revive your work in me. Restore your work in me. Restore your joy in me. God, show me mercy as you are working and moving. I don't understand what's coming. I don't know how we'll make it through these days, but God, remember mercy. He calls out for mercy. His hope and his song come from seeing God for who he is. I've seen you. I've heard of you. It does us good to remind ourselves. That's why our worship is geared the way it is. Why our preaching is geared the way it is. is so that you will see God for who he is. But it's also critical to remember God for what he has done. That's why secondly he gives us a reminder of God's awesome faithfulness. In verses 3 through 15, Habakkuk basically gives a retelling of some of the most miraculous things that God has done in the nation of Israel's history. Matthew Henry said of this passage, It has been the usual practice of God's people when they have been in distress, ready to fall into despair, to help themselves by recollecting their experiences and reviving them. Considering the days of old and the years of ancient times and pleading with God in prayer. Habakkuk goes back and he remembers how God had been faithful. He's seeing God for who he is, but now he begins to recount and retell what God has done. In verses 3 and 4 of chapter 3, he describes two instances where God had revealed His glory amongst His people. In both instances revolving around the law, where He gave the law and enforced the law. It was in these accounts where He was described as a devouring fire and a consuming cloud. It was in these instances that God declared, I am the Lord your God. I have brought you out of the land of Egypt. It was me. I delivered you with my mighty right hand. In verse 5, Habakkuk points to the plagues that came on Egypt. It was God who orchestrated the plagues. It was God who humbled Pharaoh. It was God who released his people. And even nature and the elements are under his sovereign rule and control. Verse 6, God preserved and provided and divided the land of Canaan for his people. He cast out and ran out their enemies. He protected them. He provided for them. He is the everlasting God and the God of everlasting promises. Verse 8, he recalls how he not only split the Red Sea and the Jordan and had them walk on dry land, but he brought an ocean from a rock providing water in the wilderness. In verse 11, God literally arrested and halted the sun and moon in their place at the prayers of his people. 
Verses 9 through 15, he describes how God carried out every victory, every, uh, every conquered enemy is due to the hands and the work of God. He executed justice righteously. He's been unfailingly faithful, and Habakkuk ascribes all of this to God and His faithfulness. In verse 13, there's a prophetic nod to Jesus in the person of Joshua as he points to the salvation of God. And all of this recounting and all of this retelling culminates with Habakkuk's response in verse 16. Look at it. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones and my legs tremble beneath me. Don't miss it. Habakkuk says, when I think about who you are, when I think about all that you've done, the times that you have made a way where there was no way, where you stepped in and did them, when I consider you, I stand in an awe of you that shudders me to my core. I can't contain, I can't fathom who you are. And when I think about you, man, it shakes me. It transforms me. It's in that holy reverence and fear. See it again. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble. He is surrendering. He's submitting to what God must do. How? Why is this happening? Because there's hope. I will quietly wait because I know that in the end, God will redeem. God will restore. Habakkuk stands in full awareness and awe of who God is and all that God has said, and all that God has done. He's not concerned with the details of what is ahead. He just simply rests and trusts in what God is doing. Here, herein lies, let me summarize it this way, the purpose of the lyrics. He's calling us to remember, to remember God and who He is, to remember what He's done. When you and I find ourselves in places where we don't know and I don't know what you're doing, God. I can't see where you're leading. I, I feel your hand. God, I trust you, but man, I don't see you. I, I don't understand what's happening. Remember. Remember who he is. Remember what he's done. He has never failed you. He's done the impossible. You think he can't handle your situation? Remember. He's calling us to remember and to rejoice. I will wait I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. And he's calling us to respond. Respond in faith and obedience. Respond in submission to who he is. Now, in light of understanding these things, Habakkuk continues to sing this song. And his song says, don't stop working in me. Don't stop reviving us. Revive your work in us. Have mercy on us as you work, as you prune, as you sanctify. You alone are God. You alone are faithful. You alone can do this. You are God, and I rejoice in you. You are the source of our hope, our joy. He remembers. He rejoices. Now let's consider his response as we close. So you've seen the scene and the song, the lyrics and their purpose. Look at now the response and our hope. Let's read his response in the finale of this song that he sings. And then I want you to see a couple principles as we close. First of all, I want you to see this response of surrender. Look at verse 17 with me. We'll put it on the screens. Now don't forget the context here. You know, I... 
this work of God disciplining us and sanctifying us is one that is a lesson I feel like I've been in this classroom for a while now. You know, we as parents, we discipline our children, and we do it for a purpose. It's like a surgeon. A surgeon cuts not to wound, but to heal. That's the picture that's given here. And I've sensed this work of God sanctifying me. And there's times where I find myself going, I see it, or do it, I I feel it, this is, I I feel the work, it's hard. I, I don't know what you're doing, but I know you're sanctifying, I know you're working me, and man, I'm just like black belt Christian, just surrendered to it, God, do the work. And then there's times where I'm like, enough is enough. When, are you done yet? Like, I've learned this lesson. Check. Can we move on, God? Let up. I want you to see the surrender of Habakkuk in this passage. Things are still bleak. Wickedness is still rampant. God is going to soon discipline His children at the hands of the Chaldeans. They're on their way. Things are bad. Listen, they're going to get worse, and they're probably going to stay that way for a while. Don't miss that. This that he describes in verse 17, it's the opposite picture of this breadbasket of blessing that was promised them in the land of Canaan. That's what he's describing. They were to be enjoying plenty, but listen what Habakkuk says in verse 17. He says, though the fig tree should not blossom. Listen, I don't know anything about planting and reaping. I'm terrible at it. I'll kill a cactus. I'm no good. But scientists tell us that when a fig tree bears a fruit, it also bears a blossom. And the blossom is what ensures fruit will continue to be born. Habakkuk says, not only is there no fig, but there's no blossom. Without a blossom, there won't be figs next time. Things are bad, and they're going to be bad for a while. He says there's no fruit on the vines. The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. It's bad. It's going to get worse, and it's going to be bad for a while. This is a picture of seasonal harvest where there's nothing. There's going to be a time where there's no food. There's no crops. He says the flock be cut off from the fold, and there's no herd in the stalls. In other words, the flocks and the herds cannot multiply. They will die off. There's no food for them. There's no grain for them to eat. They cannot be multiplied. They're going to be cut off from one another, from one another, and they will die. Here's the picture. There's no crops. There's no sheep. There's no cattle. There's no food. Things are bad, and they're going to be bad for a while. Now you say, this doesn't sound like a song of hope. Listen, this is him surrendering. God, I've seen you. I trust you. You're working, and I don't necessarily need to know how, but I've heard you, and things are bad. And with discipline, with what you've got planned, things are going to be bad for a while, and I surrender. Whatever you do, God, if there's, if there's no crop, if there's no food, if there's no animals, if there's nothing but heartache, if there's nothing but, but trial ahead, okay, Don't miss the crescendo. There's a response of hope. Look at verse 18, the next text. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. 
I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Don't miss it. Things are bad. They're going to be bad for a while. Yet, I rejoice. This is a man who's grown a lot in a few chapters. It's the picture of someone who has come to find hope, come to find joy, come to find satisfaction in God alone. For Habakkuk, things were bad, and they were going to be bad for a while. But there was hope There's a reason to rejoice in this song. In the midst of the trial, in the midst of the testing, in the midst of the circumstances, there's a reason to rejoice because God will finish what He started. God will carry out His purposes. You see, hope looks back. Hope looks back and remembers all that God has done. And it rests in His person and His promises for the future. Hope looks out. It sees every context that it's in as a means of God's sovereign grace to instill and to edify and to build a longer and deeper hope. Hope looks up, even in the most difficult of circumstances, whether it be our own discipline that we deserve or God's sovereign providence in just refining and making us into the image of His Son. It looks up and it finds its source of hope and joy and satisfaction in God. That's the song he's singing. Habakkuk chapter 3 reminds me of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8. I always love to read chapter 3 of Habakkuk and Romans 8 side by side. The Apostle Paul comes out of chapter 7 of Romans, and he's asking the question, the law has condemned me, my flesh is a mess, wretched man that I am, who will save me? from this body of sin and death. And he answers it that it's in Christ. And beginning in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, he says, There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Paul goes on in that chapter to rehearse what God has accomplished in Christ Jesus. And for those who have put their faith and trust in Him alone, And what He has done on the cross, we have been given His Spirit. And He reminds them that while we suffer, these people that He writes to, while they are in real adverse circumstances, really suffering, He reminds them in verse 18 that to consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed Paul tells him that you've been chosen, that you've been predestined to be conformed into the image of God's Son, and that will come through the circumstances, through the trials, through the refining of this life. God is conforming you. And so in these circumstances, you rejoice because of the hope that we have in God, that we are no longer enemies with God, but we have been made His children, adopted by His Son adopted by His Spirit and given a spirit of hope whereby we do not fear, but we cry, Abba, Father. He'll say that there is nothing that can come against His elect. Who would lay any charge against the ones that God chooses? He says, I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor principalities, nor powers, nor anything in heaven or in earth or under the earth will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. If God is forced, who can be against us? Paul says all of this and culminates it with this, these things being our hope. And he says in verses 24 and 25, 
For in this, those promises that I've just recounted, in this we hope, and in this hope we are saved. I love reading the two side by side because in the Old Testament in Habakkuk 3, we see the pictures of God's people going through this life. Yes, we stumble and we we try to run, but God is calling us back and redeeming us and sanctifying us into the image of His Son. But in Christ, the curse of Judah, the curse of all mankind, has been remedied and reversed. In Christ, tragedy finds its triumph in, in Jesus In Christ, our songs are brought from the madness and the chaos of this life to rest in the hope that we have in Him. In Christ, we are held fast in the midst of every circumstance. In Christ, we are secured and no weapon formed against us will prosper. Habakkuk responds with joyful surrender to the providence of God. Things are bad, and they're going to be bad for a while. But he rejoices in God, the God of his salvation, the source of his strength. It points us to Jesus. It reminds us all of the gospel, that God's wrath was coming down on us. We had earned it. We stood guilty before him. And it wasn't the Chaldeans, but it was God himself, the holy God of heaven, whose justice and wrath was coming down on us and we deserved it. And Jesus stepped in, bore that wrath for us on the cross. And those who have put their faith and trust in Him have a hope that is secure. A hope that brings them through every context and through every circumstance with a song. A song that says, I will rejoice in God. I will hope in God, in who He is and in what He's done. This is one of those songs that changes everything. Does anybody else have a song that you can hear today? from your past. And when you hear it, you're transported. You're back to a place, to a time when you first heard it. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Is there anybody else? Like, I can smell, there's a song, and I'm not going to tell you what it is because you'll judge me again. You've already judged me enough today. That I can hear it, and I'm back to when Ashley and I first started dating. I can smell her Gap Dream body lotion that she used to wear. I can see the, the, the outfit that she used to wear in high school. I'm there. I'm transported back with that song. This is one of those songs that has the power to transform everything. As you and I come to the close of Habakkuk's song, we see a man who is in the middle of a very chaotic situation. He finds himself being tested by a God who is not blind to the situations of his life. And he submits and surrenders to the reality that God is in control and he's good, he's sovereign. And he rejoices and sings a song of hope that even if it all goes away, I will hope in him. I will rejoice in him for he is the God of my strength and my salvation. Of all the applications we could make, I'll give you this final one and then I want to pray for you. The final application from this song is this, the song of hope does three things. It rejoices in all circumstances. No matter where you are, it rejoices. It rejoices because it remembers, remembers who God is, what He's done. It rejoices in hope in God and satisfaction in God because it remembers and it knows who He is. And it responds with obedience and surrender, with faith that believes 
and that holds fast to Him, knowing that He is holding fast to us. This song of hope is one that we can sing for those that are in Christ. Would you bow your head and let me pray with you.